Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. We're delighted to welcome you to Religious Liberty and Education, a case study of yeshivas versus New York. Please welcome our host, J.P. Green, Ph.D., Senior Research Fellow for the Center of Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you for joining this panel discussion on religious liberty and education. We have a number of excellent speakers who I will introduce uh, as they will be presenting. Um, but I just want to talk about my motivation for having organized this edited volume. Um, which is then the basis of this panel discussion, and, and some of the things that I learned um, from this, this effort. So my motivation primarily was to figure out what I should think about um, what kind of regulation is reasonable of religious education by the state, uh, because I wasn't entirely sure, and I had heard some competing arguments that seemed uh, compelling on each side. And so uh, I commissioned a series of of authors to contribute chapters, and that yielded the edited volume that we'll be discussing on religious liberty and education. So from this effort, I really learned two main things. One is that I had always believed that religious schools could do really whatever they wanted without regulation by the state, so long as they did not receive public funding. The saying always had been, that government shekels bring government shackles. But I thought if you avoided the shekels, you could avoid the shackles. And as you will learn uh, with the case of yeshivas in New York and many other religious private schools, uh, even when they do not receive government funding, they can and are still subject to significant regulation uh, by the state, including regulation of the content of what they teach. So that was one thing I learned. The second thing I learned is that I thought that these efforts that states were engaged in to regulate would certainly be legally problematic and that there would be effective and attractive legal strategies for rebutting these infringements on religious freedom. But as it turns out, and I think you're gonna hear more about it during this discussion, um, the legal strategy, while I think is worth pursuing, and, and there are some good arguments there to be made, is not nearly as strong as people think. Uh, as it turns out, um, while uh, uh, religious liberty is protected um, uh, in the First Amendment, um, the uh, education of children is not fully covered uh, by the First Amendment, and the state also can assert an interest in how children are educated, and this can interfere with the religious preferences of parents and communities. And so while pursuing the, the legal strategy does make sense, those interested in protecting religious freedom really should be focusing on organizing politically in the elected political realm, as opposed to focusing entirely or exclusively on the legal strategy. Um, and uh, I think the good news, though, uh, is that uh, there is an excellent political coalition forming in the case of, of the yeshivas in New York, and I think around other similar groups that are being subject to uh, difficult um, regulation 
um, to fend off these regulations through political efforts. And I think those efforts are succeeding, even if the legal strategies continue to be an uphill fight. So now we're gonna turn to our panel discussion and I will begin by introducing our, our uh, presenters in turn. Guarantee their liberty was just avoid subsidy, but that's not sufficient. Um, so, oh, I, I hear a little echo of myself. So, yeah, but it's okay. Um, uh, <laughs> so, the other thing I learned, although I think it, this may be disputed uh, by other panelists, um, uh, the, but a lesson that I did draw from 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 helping edit this volume is that um, there isn't a very strong, there is a legal defense that I think, um, but we can learn more about it here, but I don't think it's, it's the main line of defense for people interested in protecting religious liberty. Um, I think the, the, the uh, prior court cases, it seems to me, make clear that the government can go pretty far in regulating the content of of education in general, including religious education. And, um, and so the real protection, I think, is political, not legal. That is, if you are interested in protecting religious liberty, it means you had better organize around this issue and actively fight for it. Don't depend on the courts to, to protect you. I mean, there are other disputes where this people have, have, have discovered that, they, that there's a danger in over-relying. Um, just ask the folks um, in the the you know pro-life uh, pro-choice uh, debate. Um, you know, over reliance on courts can can lead you into political trouble um, if your side ends up not being as well protected as you thought. And I think that's the case here. Religious liberty may not be uh, very well protected by the courts at all, and so it would require political organization and defense uh, in order to protect liberty. So those, that's what I learned, but we're gonna turn the um, panel over now to uh, our more knowledgeable uh, uh, and expert authorities. Um, so first up will be Jason Bedrick, uh, Director of Policy at EdChoice. Okay, Jay, thank you very much. And Jay, thank you very much, and thank you all for joining us here today. Uh, the, the question of whether children should learn Torah uh, with secular studies or Torah alone is actually a debate within the Jewish community of, of relatively recent vintage. It started only around 2000 years ago. Uh, so happy 5782, everybody. Uh, it says in the Talmud tractate Kedushin, a father is obligated to teach his son a trade. Rabbi Yehuda says any father who does not teach his son a trade teaches him banditry. But Rabbi Nahorai says, I set aside all the trades in the world and I teach my son only Torah as all other trades serve one only in the days of his youth when he has enough strength to work. But in the days of his old age, behold, he is left to lie in hunger. But the Torah is not like this. It serves a person in the time of his youth and provides him with a future and hope in the time of his old age. Uh, so uh, just speaking of my personal bias, I side with Rabbi Yehuda. And uh, as for me and my households, uh, we teach our children uh, we send them to a school that teaches both a rigorous uh, Jewish curriculum and also a rigorous secular curriculum. Uh, but Judaism makes room in the community for those like Rabbi Nahorai. And the question is whether the United States will continue 
to make room for those who follow him as well. About 170,000 students are currently enrolled in Jewish private schools, also called yeshivas, in the state in the um, city of New York, uh, a figure that surpasses even Catholic school enrollment. Uh, of those, about 110,000 belong to Haredi or Hasidic schools. Uh, those terms are not exactly the same. I won't define them here, uh, but these are the, the Jews that are often referred to in the media as ultra-Orthodox. Uh, and when you hear that term, it's not a term used in the community itself. Think of when you hear the term ultra-conservative or arch-conservative, and you just think, oh, a conservative. Um, so if the Haredi schools were a school district, uh, they'd be about the 25th largest school district in the United States. Um, most do teach secular studies alongside Jewish studies, but some do focus uh, almost exclusively, or in some cases exclusively, on religious studies, especially starting around middle or high school. Uh, the yeshivas have very long days. They often begin around 7.30 a.m. and finish between 5.30 and 6.30 p.m. Uh, in middle school and sometimes uh, as late as 9.30 uh, by high school. Uh, yeshiva students spend most of the day studying the canon of Jewish texts, particularly the Torah and the Talmud, along with the vast body of ancient and medieval commentaries on them. Uh, as Professor Moshe Krakowski of Yeshiva University explains, in-class activities focused on these texts more closely resemble upper-level humanities coursework in a university than clerical training or contemplation of the divine. So it's not just about memorization. He continues, uh, enter a college course on any subject in the humanities and you'll likely find students working to parse the flow and meaning of primary texts, grappling with questions like who wrote this, what were they trying to say, who was this written for, what are they arguing against? This is not so different from what yeshiva kids spend most of their time doing, except that unlike most American university students, yeshiva kids are reading ancient and late ancient texts in their original languages, biblical Hebrew, Mishnahic Hebrew, and Aramaic, rather than in translation." End quote. The students are usually uh, in pairs uh, called chavrusas, uh, and they uh, spend time trying to decipher and engage with and argue over the text and its commentaries using logic and evidence. Uh, as Krakowski notes, this academic endeavor revolves around argumentation skills, such as reasoning from evidence, resolving multiple perspectives, and contextualization, among many others, many other skills, that is, that are highly useful in nearly every other secular domain. Um, but some disagree. So in 2011, a group of formerly Haredi Jews um, formed a group called Young Advocates for Fair Education, or Yafid, uh, with the aim of getting Haredi yeshivas to teach more robust secular education. Uh, after their initial efforts to persuade failed, uh, they launched a campaign to pressure the government to crack down on the yeshivas. Uh, in 2015, they filed a complaint with the State Department of Education, naming 39 yeshivas out of the state's 275, uh, claiming that they failed to provide a, quote, substantially equivalent education to that provided in the public schools as required by law. Uh, the law dates back to the late 1800s. Uh, it was passed um, along with uh, Blaine amendments in a number of different states where you had nativists that in particular were trying to curb or control uh, Catholic schooling. Uh, the law was mostly dormant for the last century. Uh, so what substantial equivalence actually means was somewhat unclear. Uh, in November of 2018, New York State Education Commissioner Mary Ellen Elia proposed new reg regulations clarifying that in order to comply with the substantial equivalent statute, private schools would be required to teach 11 different subjects, 
uh, with 17.5 hours per week, or about three and a half hours a day, although an initial version um, actually made it appear that it would be at least six to seven hours a day. Um, they later clarified. Uh, they would also have to be subject to government inspections to be sure that they were in compliance with the law, and any school determined to be non-compliant was in danger of losing access to public aid programs such as textbooks, transportation, and lunches, uh, or even having the state direct parents to enroll their children elsewhere or have their children declared truant. Now, if you look at the truancy laws, uh, the truancy laws allow the state to impose fines uh, or even jail sentences and uh, for parents who were found in violation and could even trigger ed educational neglect charges that could result in children being taken away from their parents or placed in foster care, a group home, or a court-ordered guardianship. Uh, if the yeshiva students were placed, though, in a local public school, one has to wonder what the benefit would be. I mean, these are students in many cases for whom Yiddish is their first language. Well, how are the English language learner students doing in the local public schools? Uh, can anyone in here guess what the eighth grade math and English proficiency rates were for English language learners in Williamsburg, where most of the Hasidim live? It rhymes with Shmiro. <laughs> uh, and that's what you get for $29,000 a year, apparently. Uh, the response to the new regulations was swift and fierce. Private schools, not just the targeted yeshivas, but also Catholic and other Christian and secular independent schools joined forces to oppose the guidelines, both in the court of public opinion and in the courts of law. Coalitions of, coalitions of the schools filed three separate lawsuits against the guidelines and their supporters wrote op-eds and lobbied elected officials. Uh, in April of 2019, the schools won their lawsuit albeit on statutory not uh, statutory grounds, not on the merits. Uh, so this delayed the implementation of the regulations until they went through a formal process that included public comment. Uh, and it comment the public did. Uh, about 140,000 people left comments, which as far as we know is a record. Uh, and they were overwhelmingly opposed to the proposed regulations. Uh, at the same time, the Department of Ed launched a probe into the yeshivas uh, based on the Afid complaint. Uh, the DOE determined that 11 of the schools out of the 39 in the complaint uh, were outside of the scope of the complaint. So some of them were actually institutes of higher education. Some of them had closed down already. Some of them didn't exist. One was a butcher shop. Uh, the probe concluded in 2018 uh, after they visited about half the schools. And uh, just, before, just before Christmas, uh, they uh, released their findings. So that obviously they wanted everybody to know about them. Uh, but what they found is that uh, two of the schools were meeting the substantial equivalent statute, nine were moving toward it, 12 were, quote, developing in their provision of substantial equivalent instruction, and five were underdeveloped. But overall, what they found was that they saw real learning in the yeshivas and that they were creating a new, more rigorous curriculum, and they saw value in the Judaic studies fostering critical thinking and text analysis and skills. Uh, now, in terms of the implications, the threat to the yeshivas appears to have abated at least for the time being. The new guidelines never went into practice. They're sort of hanging over the heads of the yeshivas, but there doesn't seem to be a real rush right now to implement them. Um, but if the government were to impose its view of education on the yeshivas, it would set a really terrible precedent. Uh, for that, look no further than our friends across the pond in Britain, uh, where uh, Ofsted, uh, that's their, uh, their version of the Department of Education, was giving failing grades to schools for failure, first of all, 
these were schools that had uh, very high test scores on the national exam. These were schools that had uh, teachers who were highly qualified, who were credentialed. Uh, by all accounts, they seemed to be doing well. They were failing in one area. They were failing to teach their students British values. Now, you might hear British values and think, oh, that, that must be respect for the crown, or they must be you know, not learning about the Magna Carta. Uh, no, what they weren't doing is teaching uh, children that they could choose their gender or marry a person of the opposite gender. Uh, one of the schools that received a failing grade was a school that only went up to grade three. Uh, so this is what they were expecting uh, first, second, and third graders to be learning in Britain. And by the way, this was under a supposedly conservative Tory government. Uh, so as is so often the case, Jews are the canaries in the coal mine. Those concerned with preserving religious liberty and the flourishing of religious communities and schools that are central parts of the fabric of American society should pay close attention to the yeshiva controversy. As always, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jason. Um, we'll now turn to Rita Kogenzin, who is a professor of politics at the University of Virginia, where she also directs the Center on Constitutionalism. Uh, and Rita, let's hear from you. Uh, all right, thank you. Uh, so what I take up uh, in the chapter that I wrote for this book is the political theory that underlies some of the criticism of the yeshivas. There's this intuition or belief that's held by many secular educated people in the United States that the best kind of education for children is one that will open as many doors as possible for them. So any education that would preclude children from becoming doctors or lawyers or marine biologists, uh, or even one that would make it more difficult for them to follow these paths would be a bad education. Uh, and political theorists writing in the tradition largely of John Rawls have described this as an imperative to educate children for a quote, open future or for autonomy. What kind of autonomy should we want children to attain, uh, attain through education? Well, generally, uh, these theorists settle on something like the ability to, quote, critically examine and revise their conceptions of the good. So a liberal education should teach students how to question and to change their received opinions and beliefs, including, obviously, the religious beliefs that they receive from their parents. So how would it do that? That's the second point, by exposing children to a, quote, diversity of lives. And that's where the title of my chapter comes from. Uh, one political theorist, Amy Gutman, describes the exposure to diversity argument in one of her articles in the following terms, uh, which happen to be very relevant to this particular topic. Parents certainly have a right to forbid their children to eat pork within their home, but they also have a duty to allow their children to be exposed to the knowledge that eating pork is considered a reasonable way of life by many other people. So exposure to diversity would allow children to see that people live differently uh, and that these differences are legitimate and that they too can choose to abandon their own ways of life and adopt these others instead. But autonomy means they can't choose to adopt many very seriously religious ways of life. So education, whether public or private, must do these two things, promote autonomy and expose children to diversity. Uh, and it would be much, much better if all this education could be public, but if private schools have to exist because some parents are implacably opposed to the public schools, they would still have to meet these two criteria. And that's the prevailing liberal position on parents' rights, religious freedom, and education in sort of academic political theory. It's art, it was articulated by theorists mostly in the 1980s and 1990s, and it was articulated uh, in response to a kind of growing liberal fear of the religious right uh, and of the 
sort of threat of the rise of theocracy. But if it wasn't obvious in the 1980s that Christian theocracy was not a serious political threat in the United States, one hopes that would be clear by now. Schooling has been substantially deregulated since the 1980s. Parents now have more control than ever over their children's educations. Uh, and evangelical adherence has actually decreased substantially in that same period, uh, and its political influence has fractured. So I think it's worth asking at this point, is the liberal argument or the liberal position still relevant or useful for understanding the kinds of conflicts that are now arising between religious parents and the state, uh, like the yeshiva controversy? Or is it time to move beyond these sort of Rawlsian categories to think about these conflicts? The internal political challenges facing liberal regimes today are different from those of 1971 or even 1991. Our biggest problem is not re resurgent religious fundamentalism, but the anomie and aimlessness that have come with an increasingly bifurcated economy and society. Uh, an economy and society in which economic and cultural winners, a highly educated and affluent professional class, are living the Rawlsian dream of mobility and choice, while the losers, those with less education and mobility, are suffering from autonomy's dark side, increased social pathology like unemployment, crime, family dissolution, and drug abuse. So the loser's problem, I think, is not that they had an insufficiently Rawlsian or autonomy-oriented education. They're mostly secular uh, and products of secular public schools. They may not have been the best public schools, but we have no reason to think that their teachers didn't promote autonomy or expose them to pork eating as a reasonable way of life. It's not even so much that Rawlsian education harmed them as that it didn't do anything to help those who didn't or couldn't join the professional elite. Uh, at the same time, traditional religious communities like Haredi Jews are often equally poor and disinclined to pursue advanced education, but they don't seem to suffer from these kinds of social pathologies uh, that the secular poor suffer from at nearly the same rate. So for this reason, their education may be worth considering more seriously uh, if it can more effectively address our present challenges. And I think there are two basic reasons that the autonomy argument fails, especially in light of the current challenges facing liberalism. First, although education for autonomy purports to give children a neutral and broad selection of lives, it actually has a very narrow vision of a good life. Its conception of autonomy as open-ended choosing elevates the secular, upwardly mobile professional. Uh, such people appear maximally autonomous because they have access to the greatest number of lifestyle choices that are available in contemporary America, right? Among the greatest variety of careers, hobbies, friends, and potential spouses, residences, and so on. So a successful education for an open future tends to be actually an education for this kind of professional future. An education for an open future is open in some ways, but it also closes off many possibilities. It makes it harder to justify pursuing a trade. Um, for example, since vocational training isn't as flexible and transferable a qualification as a college degree, uh, it also makes it difficult to justify things like remaining in one's hometown or taking care of one's family, since these choices close off future opportunities. Ironically, it even makes it difficult to join a serious religious community like Orthodox Judaism, because without the requisite knowledge of language and ritual gained during childhood, you'll be unable to participate in those kinds of communities. So elevating autonomy means diminishing all kinds of good lives and choices that don't prioritize freedom from obligation or freedom of choice. The second problem that I see with autonomy education is that although exposure to diversity is intended to expand our capacity for independent thinking, it actually undermines the development of self-control, a virtue that's necessary for independence. 
uh, insisting that the well-educated person frequently revise his deepest moral commitments uh, undermines the steadiness necessary for self-control, which is developed by commitment to principles and persistence in them rather than their perpetual revision. So exposing children to diversity without any anchoring principles to discriminate among the competing lives that this diversity holds out simply surrenders them to a kind of vapid consumerism and what one liberal theorist has aptly called polymorphous nihilism. <laughs> Without a well-developed capacity for self-control, how will a child stand up to the seductions from both his own uncontrolled desires and from society's demands on him? So early liberals like John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau actually had an answer to this problem. Self-control, they argued, could only come from the consistent application of a single source of authority during childhood. Uh, that would strengthen the child's will against his desires. Exposure to diversity at this age would only have the effect of introducing many competing desires and authorities to please that the child could never adjudicate among on his own. Unlike contemporary Rawlsian liberals who see almost all the danger in education arising from indoctrination by the family, early liberals saw little to fear in the family's influence. The real danger, as Locke and Rousseau saw it, was the enormous power that public opinion, or what we might call popular culture today, has over us when traditional authorities have been disestablished. So for early liberals, it was counterintuitively an insular and authoritarian education at home that provided the essential foundation for freedom. The family provides a counterbalance against the power of society and public opinion. So they were skeptical of all schools. Uh, they thought that insular family education was almost always a better route to adult authority. For us, of course, universal homeschooling is probably not a practical possibility, although we've gotten a lot closer in the last year. Uh, but parent-controlled religious education offers an approximation of its benefits. First, it sets the child against the mainstream culture and it works assiduously to protect him from it until adulthood. And second, it rejects the inclination to diminish adult authority in the name of democratic equality. Instead, it sets the child under the relatively consistent uh, and harmonious authority of parents, teachers, and in this case, a rabbinical tradition that goes back 2,000 years. Such schooling creates the conditions under which self-control can be developed. And the virtue of self-control is, is highly transferable, right, even more than an elite college degree, since it supports both a life of continued piety or any kind of satisfying life in secular society for those who choose to leave their religious upbringings behind. The, this kind of authoritarian and protective structure is shared by different kinds of religious schools. But in the case of yeshiva education, the content is unusual in a way relevant to liberal education. Uh, as Jason just discussed, the pedagogy of the yeshiva is dialectical. Uh, students analyze texts and they dispute their interpretations with each other and with their teachers. So yeshivas combine authority and protection with disputation and criticism. So they're simultaneously cultivating self-control and the critical capacity that liberal theorists argue is necessary for liberal citizenship. This combination is all but absent in liberal theory, which tends to view all authority as an obstruction to the equality and liber liberty that children ought to learn in school. So rather than conflating Haredi education with all the other traditional religious pedagogies and emphasizing their common shortcomings, liberal theory may actually do well to examine its unique ability to combine these two salutary lessons, authority and criticism. Lifelong experimentation and revision of one's conception of the good means in practice a great deal of instability, including in those spheres where stability is most essential for success, like family and career. 
for those without extensive financial resources to absorb the damage from making radical changes in family and work, such instability can be financially and personally devastating. In effect, liberal theory has valorized a kind of education that only a small elite can really well afford, not simply financially, but more important, psychically, because it's designed to weaken in the name of autonomy, the sorts of commitments to family, to religion, to a place uh, that anchor life for the vast majority of American citizens. Haredi education, like most traditional religious educations that persist in the United States does precisely the opposite. It encourages these commitments and commitment itself as a kind of virtue of self-control, which in turn improve life and even under the relatively impoverished economic conditions that have eroded social capital in other communities in the country. Groups that maintain what we might call non-liberal ways of life, like the Haredi Jews and the Amish and various others that are sort of outside of the secular mainstream, are not just acceptable, but maybe essential for liberal democracy to preserve. A decentralized educational landscape where parents can control their children's educations and impart demanding comprehensive worldviews, as the Rawlsians call them, is not a threat to liberalism's continuity but a flattened uniform one that takes the lives of academic philosophers to be the universal standard to which all education should aspire and something as facile as exposure to pork eating as a reasonable way of life as its most serious moral demand may well be. Thank you, Rita. Um, now we're gonna turn to Howie Slug, who is from the Jewish Coalition for Religious Liberty. Thank you. And my chapter is the source of the pessimism about legal options that you heard in the introduction. Although I will say things have gotten better and that will be a theme of what I'm saying today. So <clears throat> the chap can people hear me well? Okay. So the chapter that I wrote with uh, Devorah Goldman as a co-author laid out the uh, legal options yeshivas might have to challenge the regulations and some of the strengths and weaknesses of all of those options. At the time we wrote the chapter, it was quite pessimistic. It was mostly the weaknesses of those options. But as I said, things have gotten better or at least murkier and murkier in a positive direction. Uh, the first option is the First Amendment and the Free Exercise Clause. I think that a lot of Americans assume the Free Exercise Clause will protect them from laws that burden their religious faith. Unfortunately, that's not the case, uh, at least not since 1993. Uh, there was a Supreme Court decision, Employment Division versus Smith, that dealt with two Native American drug counselors, of all things, who got fired for doing drugs. Uh, the drugs were, part of their faith, and they argued that the state had to pay them unemployment insurance because if they were fired for following their faith, the state couldn't discriminate against them and not give them unemployment payments. Uh, the Supreme Court said no. They said that since the drug laws are neutral and generally applicable, that the First Amendment's free exercise clause does not offer any significant protection. And as long as the state has a rational basis for enforcing the law, there does not have to be any kind of religious exception or accommodation. Smith itself recognized that this would disadvantage minority religions. Uh, it's written in the last paragraph of the opinion. And it says, oh, you know, I, Justice Scalia wrote the opinion and he said that religious people should seek political accommodations. And he recognized that might be harder for religious minorities, but he said that the court preferred that to having to adjudicate difficult cases about religious liberty. Uh, I actually have a heritage backgrounder coming out about Smith and its negative consequences to minority of faiths and Jews in particular, and me and uh, Rabbi Mitchell Rocklin and Josh Blackman go over various instances in which Smith will have negative consequences to Jews from allowing states to ban kosher slaughter, to ban circumcision, to ban wearing of religious head coverings, 
and we call on people who want to combat anti-Semitism to advocate for overturning Smith, uh, which I think is important for the yeshivas as well. <clears throat> but for now, we're stuck with Smith. Uh, so we analyze this under Smith and some of the exceptions to Smith. So a few years after Smith, there was another case called the Church of Lukumi Babalu I versus Hialeah. And in that case, it dealt with the Santorians, who part of their religious practice is to do animal sacrifices. And the city of Hialeah passed what on its face seemed like a generally applicable neutral law banning religious, uh, banning animal sacrifice. And you would think under Smith, this is a neutral, generally applicable law. It just says no animal sacrifice. It should be constitutional under Smith. But the Supreme Court didn't see it that way. And they weakened, softened Smith in at least two ways. First, they said, we can look beyond the face of the law. We can see if the motivation of the law was to target religion. And if it does, then the law is not actually neutral between religion and non-religion. And in that case, they said it's quite apparent that this law was meant to target Santorians. Uh, they looked at the testimony from the hearing about passing this law, and it was a very ugly attack on Santorians, claiming they worshipped demons, and they did all kinds of abominable things. So the court said, this law is not religiously neutral, therefore we're going to not apply Smith to it. They also said, if the law is not enforced in a uniform way, it's not generally applicable. And they said here, the state is not enforcing this law against anyone other than Santorians. It is a charade to say that it is, in fact, generally applicable. So we're going to apply the First Amendment as if there was no Smith. Uh, this was a step in the right direction, but it left things very difficult to prove. You don't always have people in city council meetings saying, oh, this law is secretly meant to target religious minorities. And you don't always have everything be an exception. Right? Sometimes you have one or two exceptions. Here, everything else was an exception. So it's a step in the right direction, but not nearly enough. Um, and that was where we were when the book came out. But since then, we've had a bunch of other cases that have weakened Smith in helpful ways. Uh, so some of these came in the, in the COVID context. One is the Brooklyn Catholic Diocese versus Cuomo case. This was a challenge to restrictions on in-person prayer during COVID. Um, and on the face of this law, religious institutions were given harsher restrictions than non-religious institutions. There were exceptions and larger in-person uh, you know, threshold for secular institutions than religious ones. The court in that case mentioned that statements made in connection with the challenge rules can be viewed as targeting the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. And that was very helpful. The court did not end up ruling on that basis. They ruled on the much easier basis of right on its face. This law is not religiously neutral. It treats religious institutions worse than secular institutions. It was, it's a good sign, but that case by itself didn't really advance anything. But then we get Tendon versus Newsom, which is another COVID case relating to restrictions on religious in-person uh, prayer. And this case did a lot more. This case said, we know in Lakumi that we said when there were all exceptions, and everything except religious institutions were ex exempt. Smith doesn't apply. Here, we're going to go much further, potentially. Depends on how you interpret Lakumi, but we're at least going to clarify Lakumi and say that even if there's a single exception, right, even if there are any exceptions to this rule, not every exception, but just one, you have to treat the religious organizations and religious people as well as the most favored exception. So that clarified things a lot in a potentially very helpful way. Uh, then we come to Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. 
which a lot of people were very upset about because it didn't overturn Smith and there was hope that it would. This was a case about foster care agencies that didn't want to certify same-sex couples as being the optimal environment for children to be placed in. And they sued claiming, you know, in part our religious liberty right. And they did win. And the court didn't overturn Smith, but it did do two things that I think would be very helpful to religious people in general and to the yeshivas. The first thing they said is, it doesn't matter if any exemption has ever been granted, if the state or the government actor even has the power to grant an exception, they have to grant that to a religious institution unless they have a compelling reason not to. So if the face of the law has on it a, an exception and says there can be exceptions, then there needs to be one for religious organizations. And the court went very far to find an exception in that case. There wasn't one in the actually challenged part of the statute. So they had to look to a different part of the statute and read it in through ambiguity. And they were very generous in their finding of an exception. Uh, the second thing, which I think is very important, is if once they do get to that step and they say Smith doesn't apply, uh, what does the state need to do to win, right? The state can still win if they show they have a compelling reason to enforce their law. So in that case, in Fulton, the state said, oh, well, anti-discrimination is our, is our important interest. It's compelling. And we should still be allowed to enforce this law, even though it targets religion, because it's not, it's not generally applicable. And the court said, no, you can't just claim a vague interest, no matter how compelling. Anti-discrimination, sure, is very important. But you need to show that your compelling interest applies to enforcing it to these specific people and not having even a narrow accommodation. You need to do more than just cite a vague reason. Um, so I think both of those reasons are helpful to our case, right? We don't know what the new regulations will look like because as uh, as we heard earlier, the old accommodations were defeated, because the old regulations were defeated on procedural grounds because they didn't have proper notice and comment and had to be repassed. So we don't exactly know if there will be exceptions or no exceptions, but we do know that under the old rules, there were some exceptions. For example, there was an exception for secondary schools that voluntarily register with the Board of Regents. Um, and that is not a very large exception, but it may well be significant enough under Fulton. We just don't know. And Education Law 5001 provides exceptions for private schools. And in Fulton, they were willing to look beyond the face of the actual section being challenged. So maybe a court would be willing to look beyond the actual face of the regulations being challenged and go to 5000-1 and find an exception there. Also, in our, in our case, the city might say, oh, we have a compelling interest in education or in students' education or something like that, and that broad interest is not enough under Fulton. Fulton makes clear they would have to do more and look at the particulars of these students and, and how well they do or don't do and not just apply to a broad interest. Another, another ground that we could challenge the statute under, that was the First Amendment, is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act was a direct consequence of Smith. Uh, a lot of people saw that Smith was severely restricting religious liberty, and they said, this is intolerable. We're going to follow Justice Scalia's advice in the opinion and seek a political accommodation. So they created the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which meant to set things back to where they were, one minute, uh, before Smith. I'm going to rush a little bit. And uh, that statute only now only applies to the federal government. So we would be protected against the federal rule but we won't be protected against states. And 21 states have their own RIFRAs. New York does not have one. Um, another possible one, another possible defense is substantive due process. Uh, substantive due process is the preferred method from some people. They point to a case called Pierce, 
or Society of Sisters, where a state found that there's a right of parents to direct the upbringing and education of their children. Um, that is, uh, that, that may well work, but I think substitute process has a lot of downsides. One downside is that it is totally unpredictable. It is what we diversely call judicial activism. There are no standards to it. It allows judges to do anything they like, and they could just as easily build it against the yeshivas as for it. In fact, the last thing I'll say is that the Sixth Circuit, using this method, uh, found that students do have a, students have a right not to be regulated to a system that does not provide a plausible chance to attain literacy. And that could be used to bolster the state's case rather than to undermine it. So I think that self-due process is not something we should rely on. And I'll just close by saying, what should we do? Uh, we do have some better options than we had when this chapter was written, but I think we should push to overturn Smith so that the First Amendment will be reinvigorated and that will give us our best chance at winning. Uh, I also think we should push New York to adopt our Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Under the federal one, we would still have the full protections of the uh, akin to the First Amendment by statute. And if New York passed a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, we would have those under the state law also. So there are two practical things that people can do and lobby for and push for in order to give us better footing than we have now, but we do still have better footing than we had two years ago. Thanks, Howard. Um, now we're gonna turn to Jay Ferguson, who is head of school at Grace Community School in Tyler, Texas. I'm gonna try to be brief because I wanna get to y'all's questions. Um, I kind of back-ended my way into being ahead of school. I was practicing law for 10 years, doing uh, litigation, civil rights, representing municipalities. So I kind of back-ended, Forrest Gumped my way into education, didn't really know what I was doing, but I had the lawyer's golden question of why. So I asked a lot of questions about why are we doing it this way? Why are we doing this? And I realized in asking a lot of why questions is that Christian education, and I found out like other types of religious education is fundamentally different than its unitary public school counterparts, different in ways of knowing, different in its ends, different in its understanding of reality and the meaning of life and what it means to be human than its public unitary school counterpart. Um, and my experiences, and what I learned as a lawyer and a head of school informs my argument in this book, and that for, which is for the state to expect, inspect, and impose a substantially equivalent framework onto religious schooling as the New York State Education Department attempted to do with religious schools, including yeshivas here, would not only fundamentally alter the nature of religious schools, um, but in the process undermine compelling state interests in a well-educated citizenry and effective civil discourse. In fact, the otherness of religious schooling is not only something that's completely inevitable, but it's something to be desired in promoting the public good, the common good. And so in my chapter, I discuss how decades of court interpretation built around the extra-constitutional concept of separation of church and state required the public school system in the U.S. to provide a common education from the broadest possible ecumenical philosophical base, and that is from a secular naturalistic epistemology uh, or way of knowing of understanding the world around us. And in contrast, religious schools, particularly Christian schooling, which I was asked to give a perspective of, um, 
comes at it from a completely different perspective. And I give multiple examples of these differences in the chapter, but uh, if you'll bear with me just a few to, under, to illustrate the point, um, from a Christian way of thinking and from perspective, um, angelic demonic beings are part of the ontological fabric of reality, impacting and influencing life on earth. God is the creator of all that is. He's not a deistic God. He's an active God in all of creation. Um, it though that reality has implications on the Christian mind and how it, how uh, the Christian mind perceives identity um, as externally referenced. Who I am is defined by who God claims that or says that I am rather than self-referenced. Um, who I perceive and claim myself to be from the stuff of reality or the stuff of creation around me. Truth is also rooted in the nature and character of God in the Christian mind. Uh, and since God is unchanging, truth is absolute and unchanging, whereas it, from a secular um, uh, unfixed perspective, that's not the case. Um, I talk about creation itself as an open system with a with a sovereign God being um, actively involved in creation, intervening and working in creation versus creation as a closed system from a naturalistic perspective. Um, and all of the bel beliefs also influence practice and to think Christianly impacts not only about on curriculum and pedagogy, but it dramatically affects how Christian schools view school leadership, governance and training, professional development, and everything that makes up the ecology of a school community. And the point is, because of these dramatically different ways of thinking about the world, Christian education cannot be substantially equivalent to U.S. public education ever. I make the point that to suggest um, that public school education and Christian or other religious education can be substantially equivalent because both teach English and math is to suggest that a Subaru and the space shuttle are substantially equivalent vehicles because they both have tires and windows. One is dramatically different than the other and substantially equivalently is a term without meaning. In this case, religious schools families choose religious education because they do not want a substantially equivalent education for their children and to force it on them isn't freedom it's antithetical to the principles of the Republic. Um, to, to, be, to have that forced on Christian education, uh, substantial equivalency would fundamentally alter both the nature of religious schools themselves and the religious tenets that support it. And what's even worse is that those attempts to impose state standards on religious private schools would undermine the common good that they seek to achieve because America's genius lay in her heterogeneity, her diversity, multiple perspectives, well-educated, yet pluralistically educated voices speaking into the public marketplace of ideas. And the state undermines its own self-interest by subverting that diversity. Um, the, having multiple pluralistic ideas speaking philosophically diverse messages into the landscape of ideas and perspectives, stronger theses and antitheses generating more powerful national theses is the American way. Um, and 
finally, I make the point that if the state wants to exercise some degree of oversight over the quality of education, it has that means through the accreditation process that private schools are, are part of and subject to um, that can be uh, advocated for and regulated. Um, states not only undermine parents' interests, religious freedom, but the common good and principles of good American citizenry when they attempt to impose uh, principles like substantial equivalency. Thanks. Great, thank you. So um, uh, for those of you who are watching the live stream, uh, which I understand is, is working, uh, which is great, um, you may ask questions by entering them into the chat box um, and so that we can um, uh, have them asked here on your behalf and have you participate in the discussion virtually. Uh, so go ahead and feel free to enter your questions in the chat box. So in the meantime, uh, I, my thought would be to try to open this up for discussion as quickly as possible to you, which is why I've kept all the introductions brief and why we've kept to a very strict time limit on the talks, um, because we have a really great collection of people here with a lot of expertise on this issue. Uh, and I think we could all learn from each other by, by opening this up to to uh, questions from the audience. So if you have a question, go ahead and please raise your hand. Yes, please go ahead and identify yourself uh, for the uh, audience at home. I certainly hope not. I certainly hope that we're still a nation that believes in pluralism and educational pluralism and that we're a nation that believes that different voices speaking into the public forum creates, you know, I think about things like, I mean, just, I think about the, the bad decisions that are in our nation, the Bay of Pigs. I think about some of the things that happened uh, Watergate and a lot of those things were people, were, were groupthink. They were everybody thinking the same thing in the same way, and uh, and that and that led to disastrous consequences. When you have disparate thinking, different ideas, different philosophies speaking into uh, the the common good, I think that that's how great decisions are made. And uh, and and I think that that kind of educational pluralism actually promotes it. So I hope I hope not. Yes. Go ahead and identify yourself for the folks at home. People there succeeded in getting a, a refer passed that would restore that standard um is there any guarantee that even under that uh standard that um uh that courts would be persuaded that um religious freedom uh trumps uh the government's uh, compelling interests is there a guarantee no but there's uh 
saying that strict scrutiny, which is the standard you get under the First Amendment or under RIFRA, is strict in name but fatal in fact. Uh, very few things ever are able to survive strict scrutiny. And given that Fulton said, as I mentioned, that you need to look not just at is the is the interest compelling in theory, but in fact, they would. I think we have a very strong chance when they look at these students and see, you know, a it's a very small number of students who are being exempted, so it's not going to crash civilization or anything like that. And B that these students don't end up having terrible outcomes in, in by and large. I think we have a very strong chance of winning. Okay. Um, so uh, let me um, uh, see if I can channel my inner Neil McCluskey, who is here uh, in the audience, um, as, as a way of provoking him uh, to to join in in the conversation. But um, uh, so by asking maybe people on the panel to identify if there's a line that religious schools could cross where you would say that is no longer considered um, an education, that no longer satisfies the state's compulsory education law, um, where the children could be considered truant. And so can you envision that school uh, and, and help me understand where, where that line would be? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, look, I, I can in theory. I just, I, I'm not sure that I can in, in actual reality. Uh, you know, in, in Kevin Vallier's chapter, he actually does try to, to draw that line. And I think everybody draws the line at abuse, right? Obviously, you can't be abusing children. You can't be physically and things like that. Um, uh, but well, then there's although, also the, although the claim of educational neglect, right? Well, so that now I was going to get to is, is the second is neglect. Mm -hmm. And uh, but that actually is, is is quite a low barrier. So he says, you know, for example, uh, if you weren't if you didn't teach them any language, or if you taught them a language that was sort of uh, you know a pigeon language, a language that only a very very small group of people um, you know uh, understood, and so that they couldn't go out into the broader society. Now some will argue, well, is that Yiddish? And I would say, well, you know, you've got you know, there's at least couple hundred thousand people in this area that are speaking Yiddish. So, and they're totally surrounded by English. I mean, I don't know anybody that can't speak English in those communities. Some speak English with a broken accent. Uh, I've met kids who go to uh, one school in particular that I've toured that uh, where they only teach in Yiddish, um, but all of the kids speak without an accent uh, because they speak English at home. So I, I do think that in theory, there, there is a line that you could cross. Um, but, but practically speaking, I just don't see that we've seen a community. You may have an individual family that might cross the line into abuse and neglect, but it's very rare that you actually see an entire community. I don't think anybody really wants to go punish the Amish, for example, uh, because they uh, stop uh, teaching their children uh, after the eighth grade, and then it's, at that point, it's you know farming and Bible study. Uh, the Supreme Court certainly didn't want to, uh, so I'll leave it at that. Is there, is there a line that would that would be too far for you? Well, I think in principle you could come up with a lot of principles, right? So you could say, well, you know, a school that's teaching the destruction of the United States, like some school run by ISIS or something like that, right? No, and that's not traditional public schools. <laughs> what? I, too far? Um, Look, there's a lot of schools that are leftist or socialist or whatever that you know socialism would 
wants a world state. So if you're going to some to some you know sort of left inflected school like this that's arguing that it'll be good to have a world state, should we shut that down too on those grounds? So that's the problem with like the legal principle approach to to this problem. Um, I mean, you know, child abuse seems like an obvious standard, and I think that is actually kind of helpful because child abuse is generally adjudicated not at the level of schools, right? It's not the Department of Education that goes in to adjudicate child abuse. It's an individual family adjudication where, you know, Child Protective Services or, you know, other social service bureaucracy goes in and does an investigation of families. And I mean, I think that's the that's the right sort of sphere in which to be examining that limit, right? It's, a, it's not that schools abuse or that there are abusive schools, that if that kind of thing is going on, it's going on for the individual child, right? And so it should be in, investigated at the level of the individual child. And it's very hard to imagine that there are going to be many parents signing their kids up for a school that is just like some kind of physical torture factory or something like that. Um, and that's the other point is that a lot of these extreme positions, and you could say even, you know, or Orthodox Judaism or Haredi Judaism is a kind of extreme position. They're not, they're just never going to be attractive to the mainstream. You know, being Amish is not attractive to the mainstream. It's opposed to the mainstream. So they are self-limited in sort of how much, how many adherents they're ever going to acquire under normal circumstances. Sure, if America, you know, collapses and all we have is a kind of zombie world of people living in weird communes, like nobody's going to care about the First <laughs> Amendment anymore after that, right? So you could say it's an irrelevant point. But I think that most of the ways in which you would try to impose these limitations would be based on individual families and not really at the level of the school. So I think setting up these sorts of principles will always get you into trouble. So, so let, let me let me sharpen it a little bit before moving to Howard. So when I was in high school, I uh, read a book called Summer, uh, which is about a very progressive school in England uh, where there are no rules, no requirements of any kind um, of the uh, author, um, the, who was the head of school, described a student who decided to spend the semester in a tree, and that this was fine, and that when he was ready to come down, uh, that would be fine too. Um, and at the time, as a high schooler reading it, I thought that was the greatest school on earth. Um, <laughs> sounded really cool. But but uh, and and it's funny because this is a popular book; a lot of people would read. Um, and think this, you know, this should be inspiring for how to run a progressive school. And yet, uh, is, is spending your semester in a tree uh, going too far? So I think on the level of input, you probably can't have any sort of, of regulation, meaning if you don't like the ideology, if you don't like the message, that is protected by the First Amendment by free speech, and that can't be. But on outputs, if the state could show real concrete evidence of there's certain schools leading to people becoming wars of the state or not being able to work. And they had real concrete evidence, not hypothesis, not just some expert saying, oh, I think this is likely, but real significant and abundant evidence. I think they might have a case there, but it would require a real showing and it would take a long time of gathering evidence and not be at the level of, well, I don't like the inputs. Jay, with regard to the outputs, I actually have a real life example. Uh, Wait, you had a student spend a semester in a tree? Not in my, not in my school, but in my state, uh, there was a school that was actually a school that was actually a select athletic team that masqueraded as a school uh, that was shut down by the state because it was an excellent uh, athletic team, but it actually wasn't teaching children to read or write, reading, writing, arithmetic, 
And so there was a baseline state standard of actually creating and generating literate citizens that was not actually being met. Oh, they were fabulous at football lit. Oh, I, I blew the sport. They were fabulous at a certain type of literacy, athletic literacy, but not at, uh, that baseline literacy that the state was requiring. And so I think that, while anecdotal, is somewhat instructive. Um, so, so uh, we have a, uh, and then um, uh, I, I see we have a question from the online chat, but just before we get to that, just wanted to follow up. Um, and this is where, because I, I, I saw a conversation that Neil was having online, and that this is what the what made me think about this. So, if if you say, well, there's a baseline literacy, then that means we have to measure it. And if we have to measure it, does that mean we have to have tests for everyone? And who gets to pick the test? And who gets to set the line? And where do you want to go down that? Yeah, I think it's a difficult. It's a difficult one. This was easy because the answer was basically nothing. And so um, it was easy to measure because there wasn't anything. Um, but but you're right. I mean, I do think it creates problems when you, when you start talking about different grades and different different uh, levels. Okay, thanks. Um, so our online question. Uh, uh, so I guess John is going to read it, and then I need to repeat it into the microphone so that everyone else at home can hear it too. Yeah. Okay. To what extent do the panelists agree that a common political education is desirable for American political coherence? Okay, so the question is, to what extent do the panelists agree that a common political education is required for American political coherence? Um, American political coherence. That is, is America, I, I, to translate that slightly, it sounds like the question is, um, does, is there a danger to American unity if we don't have some sort of minimum political content in, in education? Well, I think we have to assume there's a lot of political unity of, around us today to think that, <laughs> <laughs> that this is really going to be a, an ideal goal. Uh, no, I mean, I, I don't I don't think that that's the case at all. I think, you know, we, most of our civic education does not come from school. It comes from living as citizens in the United States, or if you're not a citizen, living as a resident in the United States. And I mean, I think that was largely intended by the founders. I mean, you know, the Constitution doesn't say anything about education at all. And that was a point that the anti-federalists were keen on. Uh, and so they were very conscious that they didn't include a specific form or provision for education. Not because they thought everyone should be uneducated, but that the kind of civic education that matters most for most Americans is the kind that they get from living in the United States. Uh, so I and you know once you get to questions of political unity, who's going to decide what it's going to look like? I mean, you can just think about Common Core as an example to, of how you know efforts to come up with a coherent and unified civic education just flounder in the United States because of the overwhelming disagreement and diversity that that exists. Um, very quickly, uh, it depends if the question was required or desired. Um, I would certainly desire it, right? I would love it if every student read, you know, the writings of James Madison and read the Federalist Papers, but I wouldn't require it. I think the Constitution probably prevents you from requiring it, but I would definitely desire it. Yeah, and I think we're not going to regulate ourselves into um, more civic literacy or anything like that. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at the research of uh, Patrick Wolf and Corey D'Angelo, who's here in the audience, and others. Uh, who have looked at these questions, 
uh, actually, even without these sorts of top-down regulations, private schools tend to outscore public schools when it comes to measures of civic literacy, civic engagement, uh, even things like political tolerance. So uh, I think we are a free and pluralist society, and our uh, school system should reflect that. I see Jonathan Butcher has a question. Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, Dr. Kaganza, I saw your presentation at the School Choice Conference about a year and a half ago. It was very good then, very good now, so thank you. I thought it was really terrific. Now, I wanted to mention something, though, about your comment about the Common Core. So the Common Core was math and reading. And so while there was a conversation anyway about having civics Common Core, I, I separate the failure of the Common Core to something that was a little different than this question of do we have to have uh, something that I've learned, and I've mentioned this to Jay earlier today, this concept of habitus, right? I, I do think, and I don't I don't know that schools have to be even the primary place or the only place, but there has to be something that we share, right? There's got to be some sort of common understanding of right and wrong in order for a communities, right, to then be able to solve big problems like a pandemic, a financial crisis, wars, things like that. And what that is, or to the extent of that, that I do think America is uniquely positioned to determine because of our existing culture of, of freedom and understanding. And so I guess I guess what I what I would argue in, is just that I think what's being done in schools, <coughs> public schools right now in particular, but private schools as well, is something that's trying to work against that habitus, right? Something that's trying to work against a shared understanding of particularly a revulsion to discrimination. Um, I, so I think that's what's going on, which it's sort of skewed a little bit from the topic of the book and what you guys are talking about. I guess my question then is, um, and this might just be an easy one because I think it is right down the alley of what you're talking about. How do you feel like private schools can help to, to solve that, to restore that? So, okay, so for the audience at home, it, I, I, it would be hard for me to summarize everything that Jonathan said. He started with, read is great. I think we can agree on that. Um, and then uh, he was saying uh, that uh, the concept of habitus um, and some sort of common understanding of right and wrong might be important uh, at, at a minimum for, and might private schools play a particularly important role in promoting that. I think that was the essence of it. Yeah. Well, since you've got something nice about it. Uh, yes. I mean, I think I think that's right. That, that's part of the argument that we want to have decentralized education for precisely this reason that we want people to pursue you know, their visions of the common good. And if the public schools are failing, I mean, that's one of the arguments, I guess, in this whole yeshiva controversy is that substantially equivalent to what if the public schools of New York City's you know, results are so low? Right. That it may be, you know, we hold up the public schools as obviously the same quantum of education, but sometimes it's not right. Sometimes it's the public schools that fail. You know, last year, the public schools were closed and the schools that actually, you know, brought students back and substantially educated them were the private schools. So there are many situations in which we sort of can fall back on the private schools to do things that sometimes the public schools, for various reasons, sometimes they're false, sometimes not, are unable to do. I think something that. Um... Jason had talked about at one point is the value of the yeshiva education. As he described it, what he was describing was a classical humanities education. It's the opportunity of dissecting text. It's the opportunities of, of making arguments, compelling arguments, and um, 
what what uh, what what's really important there is pursuing a noble vision of the good life, and I think that to a large degree is what religious schools are all about. Private schools are to a large degree too because they're they're public they're they're people who pay for their kids to be educated there demand it um, for the most part, and so I think it's it is a really important part of. Uh, of a humanities-based education, which a lot of private schools are, are responsible for. So we're almost out of time, but I see Rabbi Cohen has a question. Uh, I want to make sure and take that. The question you would raise before, Jay, about drawing the line. And by the way, Jason was right that this has been a rabbinic debate for 2,000 years. And I hear that this Monday there's going to be a decision. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, you know, in order to answer that question, I think um, you have to have an understanding and know where religious education is as a core, 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 core religious, not only value, but requirement, commandment, if you will. You know, it's, it's you know, that, how you view that will depend, will determine where you, where you draw the line. I, I'm working in this area for 32 years. Back when you couldn't, if you said the word school choice, you were either laughed out of town or you were thrown, you were run out of town. And I've, I've you know, engaged in, in legislation about Title I for private schools, and, you know, IDEA, everything, the whole gamut of it. And, and there's always this attitude that there's always been a fight. It's always a fight. Um, and it's, I remember one time where I was, I was giving testimony and after, I think it was about title one and, and after, uh, I, I gave my presentation, there was one, uh, one question from the panel. Well, you don't, you don't have to go to a religious school, right? <clears throat> and I said, no. And before I could say, but he said, thank you. <laughs> and then I realized, you know, that this was, just, he was just leading me into a trap. And now, you know, when I've been asked that question, I say, yeah, no, I don't have a choice. And, and this is true of school choice issues or any, any kind of issue. I don't. No more than I have a choice about keeping the Sabbath or keeping kosher. You know, it, all of a sudden, it, you know, to them, it was like religious education. It's, you know, it's political, you know, or it's, it's sort of charming. Or you know, it, it, it's 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 it's, it's something it's, you try on like a dress at a gala. Right. It's not you know, it's not something that you really need. Or let's say you because know, you don't want to go to the public school in the area, so you go to the religious school. You know, and I think part of this whole discussion, part of where you draw the line, is in the minds of public officials and in the minds of the public, there has to be a better understanding that religious education is bedrock fundamental religious requirement so and and that and because of that that will you know i'm not suggesting that there should or shouldn't be lines i don't know where the lines are but if you have that attitude about how fundamental religious education is it's going to affect the mindset as to where you draw so so let me wrap up because i think we're, we're over time a little bit um and summarize for the people at home uh what i think rabbi Khan just said which is, um, uh, he was trying to answer the early, my earlier question about where would you draw the line about what constitutes an education? And he answered it slightly differently, saying 
Um, for me, I know what the minimum is. And the minimum for me is a religious education that I, I must have, a religious education. And I think many people of religious convictions do not see it as an option. Um, and the interesting part of that is that it shows the futility politically of the state of New York attempting uh, to regulate these schools out of doing what they're doing. Look, if, if the czar and, and the communist regime could not drive yeshivas out of existence, and they couldn't, um, if people were so determined to provide a Jewish education that they would do it you know, secretly uh, uh, with threat of prison, um, this conviction is not unique to Jews. Um, this conviction is true among many people of deep faith who believe that the only adequate education for their children is a religious education. And, and so in some ways, the policy, the political stuff doesn't matter because those people are going to figure out a way to do it no matter what. Um, and what we, I think, would really want to do is figure out a political environment in which we don't have to make those people do it secretly in the basement. Um, and that, I think, is what we're talking about when we're talking about trying to advance religious liberty. I think this discussion and this book really helped move that along. I appreciate all of you being here, uh, here at, at Heritage, as well as all, all of you tuning in from home. And thank you to all of the contributors from whom I've learned a ton and continue to learn. So thanks again. Bye-bye.